Grab on BFBS with Kate Jabot. What's the state of Britain's military justice system? We hear the judge in charge of it. The NATO Secretary General talks to us about Afghanistan, the alliance's future and his concerns about Mali. And are there dozens of brand new World War II spitfires buried in Burma? Definitely we have found 36 individual aircraft shapes that resemble spitfires. the current military justice system fit for purpose? There's been much criticism of the court-martial process recently, particularly in response to the case of Sergeant Danny Nightingale, the SAS soldier sentenced to 18 months in Colchester's glass house for possessing a prohibited weapon. In a moment, we'll hear from BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee, but first, let's hear from his honour, Jeff Blackett, Judge Advocate General of the Armed Forces. Our reporter, James Hurst, spoke to him earlier this week and asked him what state he thought Britain military justice system was in? I think the system is in good heart and it is well run and it delivers fair justice. The Armed Forces Act 2006 really has moved the system into a position where the commanding officer is at the centre of discipline which is what the services wanted. The system supports operational effectiveness of the Armed Forces which is why there's a separate system and uh, the court-martial proceedings are conducted um, as fairly as any civil proceedings in the Crown Court. You're limited in what you can say on specific cases, but it is particularly the case of Danny Nightingale that has brought this to, to public attention. Do you feel that the justice process has gone awry? The, um, the case of Danny Nightingale, obviously I can't talk about in detail because uh, it, the appeal is still ongoing. Um, but... Uh, he pleaded guilty to two charges, one of possession of a Glock 9mm and one of an amount of ammunition, 330-odd rounds, I think. Uh, he pleaded guilty to that. Uh, he appeared before a court-martial. The court-martial sentenced him, um, and he can now appeal to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal can take an oversight. So, so in that terms, there's nothing wrong with that system. In relation to the charges, um, under the Firearms Act 1968... Uh, the possession of a Glock means that the minimum se sentence is five years unless there are exceptional circumstances. The sentencing tribunal found there were exceptional circumstances uh, and sentenced him accordingly uh, to a much lower sentence than prescribed by law. Uh, and those who've criticised, first of all, uh, the judge as being out of touch, um, the sentencing tribunal is five officers and the judge. In fact, two warrant officers, three officers and the judge all have an equal vote on sentence. The judge only ever has to exercise a casting vote if, if it was a three-all split. Um, so uh, that sentence was, was um, decided upon by a board of six people. Now, the judge then delivers the reasons for sentence and the president delivers the sentence. And that's how the process was done. Some people will look at military justice and wonder if it protects the system... At, at the expense of individuals. Does military justice take enough account of the part played by the military system in, in certain incidents? Yes, the reason you have a specialist tribunal, and the Court of Appeal have, have said a number of times in a number of cases that the Court of the, the um, court martial is a specialist tribunal, and the sentencing is done in the way I've described, 
to take that into account. The prosecution takes account of the service interest test, as, which is part of the public interest test. Um, but of course, the, the whole military context is, is the basis of the court-martial system. Now, that means that sometimes sentences appear harsher than the civilian courts. For instance, in drug offences. Quite rightly, the military think that if, if somebody's taking drugs, he shouldn't be in, in employment. Um, and uh, as a matter of deterrence, sentences for drug abuse may be higher. On the other hand, there might be what might appear to be lenient sentences for, for military reasons. Um, uh, perhaps two friends who have a fight under the pressure in Helmand province might not be sentenced quite as harshly as two people on the street who have been fight. So, of course, the military context is taken into account. In the case of Baha Musa, yes. there were clearly systemic failings. Yes. In the case of Danny Nightingale, his commanding officer argues it was the system that brought the pistol back. The court-martial doesn't seem to, in, for example, the case of Baha Musa, or in the case of Danny Nightingale, either highlight or address those systemic failings. Well, um, the, the idea of a court-martial is not a board of inquiry. A court-martial is to determine the guilt or innocence of the defendants in front of it. I can talk about the Baha Musa case because it's over. Um, and in that case, um, a, an Iraqi went into custody... And, and two days later, he was dead with 90-odd wounds on his body uh, and the services had custody. So clearly, one could say it's a failing that whoever was responsible for his death has not been brought to account. I can understand that. Um, the judge in that case, um, Mr Justice McKinnon, um, talked about regimental amnesia, talked about a closing of, of people together. That, of course, is also understandable, uh, and that's one of the basis of operational effectiveness. People are a family. But that's no different, I would submit, to a, a, a gang of people in North London um, who kill somebody, and then nobody's prepared to give evidence about each other. That, that's no different from, from I would submit, in, in civilian life. And, and of course, um, we haven't brought to book the person responsible for that that death, that doesn't mean there's a failing in the system. Um, you could say, actually, that that trial was a success because um, the, the defendants had a fair trial and, and were acquitted because they were not shown beyond reasonable doubt to have committed the offence. That was the Judge Advocate General of the Armed Forces, Jeff Blackett, speaking to our reporter, James Hurst. Well, Christopher Lee joins me in the studio now. Hello, hello Christopher. Uh, what do you make of what you just heard? The importance is the confusion, I think, with the, uh, two things, really, with the public. Public perception of the forces is very, very important at the moment because they're gradually approaching that point when people might start criticising rather than just supporting. And the feeling is that there was and has been uh, injustice. In the case of Danny Nightingale. In a, certainly in the case of Danny Nightingale. Without the public really knowing the circumstances of, of the Danny Nightingale case. And that is largely because uh, there he is presented in the media, and I'm not knocking this, in the media as the SAS sniper, hero, etc. And then there's the confusion. Most people think probably that he was sent to prison by a civilian court, and he wasn't. And that is the important thing. People don't need to understand it. It's all a question of image. And the second point 
is how badly, how very badly the MOD has handled well, this. Well, I suppose the question is because, you know, the, the Judge Advocate General w was saying there, really, that in terms of the way the court-martial actually was delivered, he didn't seem to have any problems with that, and he said he, he'd, he'd admitted what he'd done, um, he'd pleaded guilty, and, and then the sentence was passed, it was agreed. I, I suppose when you're talking about the MOD, you're talking about the decision to prosecute in the first place. Um, no, I'm talking about the way they handled it is for the public relations thing. Somebody must have sat there and said, this is going to play very, very, very big in the tabloids. And yet, they weren't prepared to explain the circumstances. I mean, for example, um, people change their minds over certain, uh, over detail. You say he's got a, the man's got a weapon that was given to him as a trophy. And then somebody else says, well, by the way, he had 300 rounds of ammunition with it. Ah, they say, now, why has he got 300 rounds of ammunition with it? Nobody tried to explain the whole culture of the special forces, uh, the fact that when they, when they had an amnesty, I can't remember when that was, I think it was last May, they had an amnesty. They had one and a half tips uh, at Hereford where guys just threw their weapons in, these weapons which they'd probably brought back from all sorts of operations. And I think it's that bigger story which has allowed this thing to get out of hand. Okay, and I'm sure we're going to have uh, an update on that very soon and uh, we'll be talking about it again, of course. Um, now, the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas will ask the United Nations General Assembly to upgrade the Palestinian status to that of observer state at the UN later today. Yesterday, the Foreign Secretary William Hague said Britain would only support the resolution if the Palestinians gave a commitment to an immediate and unconditional return to the negotiating table with Israel. He also said the UK would require an assurance that they would wouldn't seek to extend the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court over the occupied territories. He's since suggested that Britain will abstain. Uh, Christopher, what is UN observer status exactly and what does it mean? Okay, you're either a member of the UN, the United Nations, and you're a member of the General Assembly, etc. Um, and that, if you're a recognised state, Palestine hasn't got that sort of status, hasn't got that recognition. So you become an observer or you become a member observer. Because it's a downgrading of what was sought in the past, isn't it? it the yes, status. originally. I mean, well, yes, originally Arafat and uh, in all those years ago wanted to become a member of the United Nations. The important thing here is that uh, the Foreign Office, in their usual way, have sort of been hedging their bets. Mm -hmm. The European Union are absolutely furious about it. The French haven't hedged their bets. They said, we're going to vote for Palestine. But observer status does actually give more powers, doesn't the most it? most important powers it would give is the possibility that it would give them uh, access to the international court, of uh, criminal court. They could then, and probably would then, uh, go to the international court and say, the Israeli army, here's a list of guys in the Israeli army who have committed criminal uh, war crimes against us. You've got to prosecute. And that is bad news entirely. The other thing, it would help give them access to all sorts of other organisations, which the Americans would then say, we're going to pull the plug on those organisations. And so it's not just a battle between Palestine and everybody else. It's a battle really between Israel, the United States and Palestine. And the vote will be much later on tonight. Uh, do you think the Palestinians will succeed? And if so, what will the consequences be? The, Palest the Palestinians, I believe, will succeed in getting a vote for this status. But that will not get anywhere because the Americans will eventually veto it when it comes to the Security Council. Still to come, is the Democratic Republic of Congo about to collapse and does it matter to us? And the treasure hunters looking for lost spitfires in Burma.
The NATO Secretary-General, Agnes Fo Rasmussen, has told SITREP he is confident about Britain's continued commitment to Afghanistan. In an exclusive interview at NATO headquarters in Brussels, he said no decisions have yet been made on troop numbers post-2014. I asked him whether he thought the measures taken by NATO against green on blue attacks had been strong enough. The measures we have taken um, will be reviewed uh, on a regular uh, basis. Um, we have done all we can uh, to prevent such uh, insider attacks. Of course, we, we, we can't give a 100% uh, guarantee. Um, if needed, we will take uh, further steps uh, to prevent such uh, attacks. We will not allow these attacks uh, to undermine trust and confidence uh, between uh, foreign troops uh, and Afghan security forces. And are you satisfied that the measures in place at the moment are good enough? I think so. Um, but I would like to stress uh, that we, uh, we constantly monitor the situation and if needed we will take further steps. What would you say to the families of a British soldier who has been killed in such an incident to make them feel or to explain that the sacrifice in some way was not a wasted life? That's always a very, very difficult uh, situation. Um, um, but I can assure you uh, that their sacrifice uh, will not uh, be in vain. Um, British troops uh, have made a huge difference uh, in Afghanistan and helped uh, to secure our societies by preventing Afghanistan from once again uh, becoming a, a safe haven for uh, terrorists. And they have made a difference in Afghanistan and helped the Afghans to move forward uh, in developing um, a better society. Um, uh, so, um, every one life lost is, is of course, one too much. Uh, but I have to say um, that uh, your troops, alongside other troops, have uh, done a great job and really made a difference uh, in Afghanistan. If we could turn to the Middle East, obviously the region has experienced incredible instability at the moment. And if we look at Turkey, the request of NATO to facilitate the use of Patriot missiles to protect it from a Syrian attack. Um, if that goes ahead, um, you've said in the past that that may actually help de-escalate the situation in southeast Turkey. What if it were the other way around and it was seen to be some kind of act of war by a NATO member? I would like to stress that uh, the possible deployment of patrol missiles uh, on uh, Turkish um, soil uh, will be a purely defensive uh, measure. Uh, and um, I do believe that this deployment um, uh, will deter uh, potential aggressors from even thinking about uh, attacking uh, Turkey. And that way, I think it will de escalate the situation. And if we can turn to a fast emerging concern elsewhere, which is Mali, um, how concerned are you? We've heard from the uh, British Chief of Defence Staff that contingency plans have been drawn up should there be a request for any British um, people, to armed forces to go in there. Um, how concerned are you that Mali, as some people have said, will become the next Afghanistan, that in eradicating al-Qaeda in Afghanistan that they may actually be provide, creating a haven for themselves in somewhere else like Mali? We are very much concerned about the situation in Mali and, and the whole uh, region. It has turned into what I would call a lawless um, territory. 
Um, but I would also uh, like to stress that uh, NATO as an alliance is not engaged um, in, in Mali. We don't seek a role uh, in, in Mali. Uh, we appreciate that the UN Security Council has adopted a resolution. We have also taken note with satisfaction that the European Union uh, has prepared a, a training mission uh, in uh, uh, Mali. Um, so, of course, we, we, we support all uh, efforts uh, to find a solution to, to the conflict uh, in Mali, but NATO as an alliance is not engaged. In terms of, of NATO's future, it can only really do what its allies can afford to do. And at a time when defence budgets are being cut, what is the future for NATO? How positive is it looking? Obviously, um, this period of economic austerity uh, is uh, a challenge. Um, but I also think we have found a good um, answer to, to address uh, that <coughs> um, economic uh, challenge, and the, the answer is more multinational uh, cooperation. Uh, we have to um, help each other, pool and share resources, go for multinational solutions instead of purely national solutions. We call it smart defense because it's a smarter way of uh, spending uh, defense uh, money. I feel confident uh, that more multinational cooperation would also lead to a more efficient use of resources. We are realistic. We don't expect much more money for, for defence in, in, in the next uh, few years. So in exchange, we will have to make more efficient use of the, uh, the resources we do have. That was NATO Secretary-General Agnes Rasmussen speaking to me this week. Um, Christopher, um, that's what he said uh, publicly to us. Does every NATO uh, Secretary-General have some kind of agenda that they keep to themselves? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit like a bishop. You know, you have an ambition uh, that whatever happens to you, you'll get this through. His is a question of neutrality. Um, I was listening to him early last week in Zurich when he was giving uh, a speech in Zurich on Churchill and he was saying being in Switzerland you are neutral Sweden is neutral, Ireland is neutral today in the world of terrorism asymmetric warfare etc nobody can be neutral in other words everybody is in the world today and you can't back off, you've got to go along and listen to what we're saying and try and support it On that note is the Democratic Republic of Congo about to collapse and does it matter to us? Over the last eight months, a rebel group called M23, which defected from the army, has been capturing areas in the east of the country amid allegations of massacre, rapes and the burning down of villages. Patrick Smith is the editor of Africa Confidential and joins us on the line now. Hello, Patrick. Who is carrying out the rapes and murders? Well, there are a group of uh, militia fighters... Um based in the far east of the Democratic Republic of Congo, one by the name of M23 um, and uh, another by the name of the CNDP. The, these are groups of uh, dissident, Congolese dissidents, and uh, as the UN panel of experts have proved over several months, they have had strong backing from the government of Rwanda. Uh, which is a neighboring state, and more recently from the government of Uganda, another neighboring state. Uh, and they've been cutting a swathe across the province of North Kivu, which is fairly rich in minerals uh, and is a major strategic uh, focus of the Rwandan government. Christopher, um, who is 20 and M23 and what do they want exactly? It comes M23 
comes from a date, the 23rd of March, M M23. And when there was, in a previous conflict, there was a peace treaty in 2009, um, the rebels said, you have not, i.e. to the official governments, you have not complied with the conditions and the promises of the March 23, and therefore we're becoming rebels, and they call themselves M23. Simple as that. So, Patrick, what's behind all of this at the moment? Is it simply a struggle to get hold of those mineral reserves? Well, I, th I think it's perhaps working on three le uh, three different levels. A couple of the people in M23 associated with M M23, a, a, a fighter called, uh, called Bosco and Taganda, um, and uh, Long Nkunda, are wanted by the International Criminal Court. And initially, they had a kind of impunity. It now appears that the Kinshasa government, headed by President Joseph Kabila, is prepared to hand them over to the court. So they've mobilized this conflict in part to protect themselves. And then there's this element of, of, of the mining revenues. Uh, if the area they control controls the borders uh, and they receive uh, various taxes uh, and tithes from anyone trading in minerals between Congo and Rwanda. And the third element is really the Rwandan and Ugandan view of the region and what they say is they don't want the region to be in chaos, or rather they want to control the chaos. So they're, they're arguing really that the Congolese government is incapable of controlling this huge country, and they need to come in with their, their military might, uh, relative military might, I should say, and, and control this area. And that's really what they've been doing on and off for the past uh, decade and a half. Christopher, the United Nations is there. What are they doing? Can they do anything to stop the slaughter? Uh, no, they can't do anything to stop the slaughter. They can prevent certain things, uh, but that depends on the local commander. It's commanded by a, a, an Indian lieutenant general who's very experienced in this, but his hands are tied, his terms of reference, etc. Uh, don't really let him get involved, nor should they, because that's not the function of the United Nations. What we have to understand is the potential here. Now, um, I suppose um, it's one of those things, Patrick, if I may. If I go back to, what was it, uh, the war, 97, 1997, 2003, in, in the Congo, there were five million people killed. Now, that is the potential, I think, do you think that, Do you think all-out war is, is possible? I Patrick? Uh, yes, I, I, I really do. Uh, I think the Congolese army has failed to protect its own people in, in, in that area. I think there are a lot of opponents uh, uh, gearing up to take on Kabila, uh, and you've got the possibility of countries such as uh, Angola, if not South Africa, joining in on Kabila's side at a really serious explosion in Congo. So it's a very rich country in mineral terms. These haven't been developed properly. So there's a lot at stake. Uh, and I, I think uh, it does behove outsiders to come together constructively and put pressure on both sides to cut a deal. It's going to be extremely difficult. And what kind of deal would, would, would both sides accept? Uh, I, I think one area I think is interesting to the listeners is, is, is virtually every European, Western European state has run a military training program in Congo over the past 10 years. And the fact that the Congolese army is in such a shambolic state, even after probably, uh, you know, $100, $200 million spent on training, tells us a lot about the political element to this. That you, you can train an army all you like, 
But unless you've got some leverage on the politics uh, and the political rivalries within the forces that make up that army, you're not really going to make much progress. So I think, I mean, military reform uh, and indeed sort of civil service reform is at the centre of this. Until you start dealing with, with, with those big issues of administration and politics, I don't think we're going to get very far in the Congo. All right. Patrick Smith, editor of Africa Confidential, thank you for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The sound of an RAF Spitfire. There are around 35 left flying today, but a new mission worthy of Indiana Jones intends to double that number. In January, excavators will start digging for what's thought to be an abandoned cache of Spitfires buried in Burma at the end of the Second World War. Lincolnshire farmer David Cundall is the man behind it all. Yesterday, he told me how he'd first found out about their possible existence. The story came to me in 1996 when a good friend of mine was talking to some Americans in uh, Florida and these Americans told Jim Pierce the story that they had to bury... Jim Pierce being? Uh, Jim Pierce was a friend of mine and he's a, a veteran uh, aircraft recoverer, mainly out of Russia. And it, they told Jim that they had to bury 12 cratered Spitfires at Mingledon in 1945 at the end of the runway. And I believe the story straight away because at the end of the runway is a favourite place where people bury things like aeroplanes and engines and things like that. So I, I, I took up, I took up the, uh, the challenge. It took me two years to research this and also get a visa as well to go into Myanmar. Uh, and I first visited Myanmar in 1998. Unfortunately, I didn't find anything uh, because the eyewitnesses got north-south mixed up. Hmm. So I was at the wrong end of the runway. Uh, but shortly afterwards, I, I found uh, some anomalies down there. Um, and in 2004, I took out the University of Leeds, Dr. Adam Booth, with a very powerful metal detector. We also did uh, ground-penetrating radar, which shows the, the shape of these uh, aircraft. And Definitely, we have found 36 individual aircraft shapes that resemble Spitfires. You're very confident that you will actually find them when you start to dig in January? Yes, I'm very confident indeed. It's taken me 16 years and, and about 800 letters, and I've spoken to many, many people who actually know about the burial or actually have seen the burial, and they've told me the same story. It's not a story that you can make up, and the detail they went to about how the boxes were stacked, how deep they are, and, it, and this precise location, that's what we have done and we have found them. Do you understand why they were buried in the way that they were? Well, there's a number of theories. Um, the best one, I think, really, that after the war, there was lots of Spitfires in that area. Uh, the war was over, nobody wanted them, so somebody gave an order to bury them. Uh, jets were coming on stream and people wanted to fly jets rather than propeller-driven aeroplanes. So, what kind of state do you think they're in? I think they'll be in very good condition because they're very deep. There's no oxygen down there. Uh, and one professor uh, told me it's like uh, opening a can of beans after 67 years. It won't taste uh, very good, but if you're hungry, you'll eat it. David Cundall speaking to me at the Imperial War Museum yesterday. Um, Christopher, um, just tell us, first of all, what were the British doing in Burma? Well, i tell you. This, the Burma campaign in the Second World War, Second World War, 1939 to 1945, yeah? The Burma campaign was the longest campaign 
that the British fought in the whole war, yet people forget about it. It began in December 1941, and it finished in August 1945. And what happened, of course, Burma was then tied into India, and the British were in India. The Japanese came in from the east and gradually drove the British... Um, and the Indian forces and the Chinese forces drove them out, drove them back into India. And then they had to sit there and say, now what do we do? And the Americans got involved in this as well. And then something called the 14th Army got involved and they said, right, we've got to start fighting back. And it took them that three years to fight back in the most awful, the most terrible conditions that the British Army has ever fought in since probably the Hundred Years' War, and that was the that was the importance of it. Is it's quite interesting that the legacy of that time is now potentially going to be unearthed, and the people who were launching it at the Imperial War Museum—they're very much heralding as it as a kind of symbolic symbolic of the improving relations between Britain and Myanmar, as it's known today. Um, do you buy into that? I mean, even the Prime Minister, when he went there, David Cameron, was kind of using this as a kind of vehicle of saying, uh, sort of symbol of, of how, how much better the relations are. Well, I think you. I mean, if if relations were as bad as they used to be, then obviously you couldn't be doing this. Um, but I, th I think we ought to sort of separate what's happening here from the great sort of political uh, goings-on. Political goings-on can change overnight. But I suspect this is the sort of thing that people, if they find 12 created... There is a big bits, if there, isn't there? Well, if they find one, it'd be, uh, it'd be astonishing. Then how do they get it out? And you know, the next thing is going to be doing, we're all going to be asked for money to help sort of rescue these things and they're going to be up they at They do Dutchford. have some backers. It's a gaming company, I think. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think they'll probably be offering them on sort of eBay. <clears throat> no, I, th I think the important thing is it is in the psyche of the British Army and also a certain generation of British people. Do you remember the name Ord Wingate, who was the most famous sort of, uh, sort of jungle fighter of them all? And the Chindits, his fighting troops. Chindits were those tiger, uh, stone tigers that were outside the temples unmovable, unbreakable and that was the British effort so they said until 1945 Well that's all we have time for this week My thanks to all our contributors and of course our defence analyst Christopher Lee Do keep your comments coming on Twitter We are at BFBS Sitrep Join us again next week but from me Kate Chabot Goodbye for now